As Randy mentioned, we're going to, good morning, I should probably say that. Uh, Randy mentioned, we're thinking of, we're going to do a baptism this summer. And when we talk about baptism, it's a way that we can express our personal faith in Christ. I've described it this way. It's, if you're married, it's really the vows that you express to one another that makes for the marriage. It's the commitment, the promise. And when you do enter into that commitment, then you wear the ring. It's an external symbol of the commitment that you make to one another. And that's, we come into a relationship with God through Christ by hearing the good news and by believing it. And as we talked about last week, remaining in it. We remain in the place that we can continue to learn. But one of the ways that we can express publicly that personal commitment is by being baptized. And that's what we'll do. We are gearing towards, it's it's better probably in terms of water quality to start early in the summer before it gets a little algae-ish. So we are tentatively thinking of the first weekend in June. And so we are planning on doing it in the pond and doing it by immersion. And so if any of you want to talk about that, and I'd be happy to talk with you about it. Another thing we're doing, uh, we are focusing on God's commitments to us. We have done that, we'll continue to do that, but the way we are highlighting that on a week by week basis is we are having individuals who can speak to what one of the commitments means to them and what it means and what it means to them this morning, Janice Engelbretson, hopefully will be joining us virtually. And she will talk about uh, God chooses me. Good, good morning, everyone. Technology is wonderful. I grew up in a loving and caring family. We went to church every Sunday, prayed at meals. I learned Bible stories at church, the salvation message. My parents read their Bibles a lot, and I really thought they knew who God was. My world changed when I began to wear a full body back brace. I had scoliosis. I didn't feel normal anymore. I was sad. I was scared. I felt alone, and I felt very isolated inside my brace. I felt very ugly. I felt very fat. I could not be a part of anything that I knew before. But I did know my sister did love me. Needing to fit in, I found being helpful to others worked. I said and did whatever worked to be a part of friends and family. I felt set apart. I remember looking at the cross in my childhood church, and I wondered, why doesn't this work for me? Just everyone else. Being helpful at all costs was changing me. I isolated from everyone, even myself. I abused my meds to shut my mind off. I was so tired and weary. Judgment and condemnation was real heavy. I ended up in treatment. I thought, if this does not work for me, what is there left to do? I read and heard the loss of self and loss of God is a thread that runs through every story. Could this work for me? I felt seen. I attended meetings and slowly started to feel less isolated and more included. I could see being helpful was not going to work. My sponsor said I could tell her anything. 
and she wanted me to tell her everything. She said to be as honest as I could. She told me to trust the process of recovery. The evidence that it worked was represented in all the faces at the meetings. I heard, keep coming back. Trust your higher power. To the degree that I could trust, I did. My sponsor was helping me. I counseled with J.C. Chambers. He was very helpful to me. He didn't pass judgment. He was kind. He was caring and accepted me for me. He was the real deal. I asked him where he went to church and would it be cool if we checked it out too? He gave me the face that only JC can do and I can't do it. But it's like, you know, he said, of course, come help. Come check it out. JC was helping me. We began to attend hope. I'd never heard anything like it before. God's not mad at me. God does not change. I thought, will this work? And I heard, will this work? I heard the answer again, keep coming back. It worked in recovery. This might work too. By remaining, that word remaining, at hope, I found out God didn't choose me because I was helpful. God chose me because he wanted to help me. He put in place people to help me. He chose me to be included in his family eternally. He chose me to father me, shepherd me. His choice of me did not eliminate life experiences, but his choice of me gave me the way to endure it. God chooses me. Thanks. Thanks, Janice. Thanks, John and Abby. <laughs> Hooking that up. Um, we're looking at words that sometimes are lost in translation. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some words that reflect the dark side. We're going to talk about hell and Satan. Um, I'm going to talk about hell today. Hell is the dark side of eternity. In the Bible, there are actually two realms of the dead. There's Hades, and then there's hell. In terms of the difference between the two, Hades is the place that temporarily receives the souls of the ungodly during the period between death and resurrection. Again, thing to point out is that it's a temporary place. And it's a temporary place where between death and resurrection that the souls of people go. Hell, then, when it's talked about biblically, in these words, Hades and hell, they're talked about in the Bible, but there's not a singular clear vision or image of them. At the time that the New Testament was being written, these concepts were in flux. And But when Hades is talked about, it's talked about a temporary place where the souls go. Hell is a different thing. It's a an eternal permanent place where body and soul go after the resurrection at the last judgment. And what the Bible talks about is that when we die, we raise as we are a soul, we are spirits outside of a body. When Jesus comes back, then body and soul will be united. And at that point, we'll enter into an eternal existence, either eternal life or everlasting destruction. We'll talk about what that means. The idea of eternal existence, by the way, is shadowy in the Old Testament. You know, there's a few allusions to it, but... 
those individuals, Jews, on the, in the Old Testament, there wasn't a clear image of immortality. What, sec, what Paul says in 2 Timothy, it's, it's Jesus who brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. Um, the idea, the idea of eternal existence isn't clear in the Old Testament. After the Babylonian captivity, though, Israel went into two different captivities. The northern kingdom of Israel went into a captivity to Assyria. The southern kingdom went into another captivity a little more than 100 years later. And they emerged from that captivity, having been influenced by pagan religion, to believe in eternal torment. Pharisees were big believers in eternal reward and punishment at the time of Jesus. Paul, then, would have believed in eternal torment. And here's the thing that when we consider, Paul is our emissary. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. In his letters, Paul never mentions hell. Not once. And that's what we've got to consider. Here's the question. Why didn't Paul talk about hell? Um, again, consider the problems Paul experienced. He was confronted by all kinds of wayward Christians and wayward teachers and individuals who uh, tried to distract him, disrupt him. He never mentions hell in any of his letters. It's clear that there's lots of times where he could have played the hell card if he had it in his deck, but he never does. Consider that he is the apostle to the Gentiles and that, again, Jesus told him what to say. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached to you is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, rather. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So what we know then, that the message that Paul was given to preach, he was given to preach by Jesus himself. When Jesus, on the far side of his resurrection, apparently, was able to connect with Paul after, after he knocked him off his donkey, and when in the 15 years before Paul does his public ministry, he had a clear sense of the message that God wanted him to proclaim. Jesus gave him that message personally. We know that Jesus speaks about hell to Jews maybe about 10 times in the Bible. He must have told Paul not to talk about hell to Gentiles because, again, Paul would have believed it, but he never talks about it. If you pull up hell... I have this Bible app, and you can put in words, and it shows where the words are. And so if you type in hell and then hit return, you'll find a list of the times that hell is spoken of in the Bible, about 11, 11 times, mostly in the Gospels. There's Peter talks about it once, James talks about it once, but you won't find any of Paul's writings or John's writings for that matter. They don't talk about hell at all. Um, There is a place where Paul talks about punishment and the afterlife. It's in one of his earliest letters, which were written to the Thessalonians. Jesus talked about his second coming. 
And two decades later, the individuals who had come to faith in Christ were really anxious for the second coming. They thought it could happen any moment. Jesus said, he came to give the indication that it could happen very quickly. It would have happened very quickly. That Jesus could come back a second time, that then souls and bodies would be united and we would enter into eternity. 20 years later, they're wondering what's going on. Um, Some... They felt like Jesus' second coming was long overdue, was creating problems. Some in Thessalonica believed it probably already occurred, and others were quitting their jobs in order to be ready for when it happened. One of the most difficult questions that they were dealing with is something that we deal with. Uh, It was the whole idea about God's justice. And they wondered, why do good things happen to bad people? You ever wondered about that? And why do bad things happen to good people? Um, God's justice is a puzzle. We know that God is just, but there are some questions that were surfaced in the Old Testament of the Bible. God is just. This is what it says. This is what the wicked are like. One of the psalmists says, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. God is just. If God is just, the writer is asking, why do I then deal with difficulties when I try to put God first? And why do people who don't put God first, why do they seem to get along fine? And so the question is, is God really just? Uh, Another, Malachi, in the last book of the Old Testament, he says this, you have said, Malachi writes, It is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. You know what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn prior to the, the closing in the closing in the closing time of the Old Testament, uh, what the Jews are saying is, "Blessed are the arrogant; they seem to get ahead, and and those who try to honor God not as much." Paul then deals with this idea of God's justice, and this is what he says: God is just; He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. What God says in this verse is that he will balance the scales at some point. He says he will relieve the troubled and he will trouble the troublemakers. He will switch the price tags. And then he went on to talk about in this verse when this will happen. And it's going to happen when Jesus comes the second time. Here's what Paul says. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the presence of his power. Jesus will come a second time to judge the world. He came a first time as a baby. The next time he comes, he'll be large and in charge. And he will come to balance the scales and switch the price tags. Some will experience eternal life. And 
Paul writes here, some will be punished with everlasting destruction. Everlasting destruction can mean one of two things. It can mean everlasting torment or everlasting annihilation. It can be the eternal presence of pain or the eternal absence of life. And the way Paul puts it, it could be either one. Which one is he describing? In the Bible, there are images that have been come to be associated with hell. The idea of a fire that never goes out, smoke that rises forever and ever. These images are found biblically. In fact, there is a verse that from Isaiah that says this. It says, Edom's land will be turned into pitch. Edom is, was an enemy of Israel, and they were always a thorn in Israel's side. So Isaiah writes that there will come a time when Edom will be judged, and it speaks of his judgment using these words. Um, Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur, her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night and day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation, it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. This is an image of the land that was known as Edom in biblical time. It is the land that it described by Isaiah, the blazing pitch, smoke rising forever and ever. And I guess my question is, what's wrong with this picture? Thing that's wrong with this picture, where is the smoke? Where's the pitch? Where's the smoke rising forever and ever? You don't see that in this image, do you? But what do you see? You see devastation. You see a lack of life. The smoke rising forever and ever, the fire that doesn't go out, obviously not an image of a fire that continues to burn because there's no fire here. It's not smoke that continues to rise. It's fire and smoke having done their job, leaving behind an absence of life, desolation. That seems to be the biblical image that are suggested by the image that have been applied literally to hell in our time. And we get the sense then that smoke rising forever and ever and the fire that never burns, we get the image of people experiencing a constant flame and a physical discomfort skin being sloughed off and grown back and sloughed off. And, and that's not necessarily, well, it doesn't seem to be what the image is about. Smoke rising forever is the biblical picture of eternal death. It doesn't seem to mean here that it burns eternally. Again, image could refer to either eternal annihilation or to eternal punishment. It also talks about being shut out from the presence of the Lord. Um, there's an image where in Luke chapter 13, uh, talks about, Jesus tells a story, 
says, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. So when you think of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a question, is this describing physical pain or emotional pain? What's happening? These individuals get to a place that they expect to enter. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's different individuals there. And they would like to consider that they are going to be able to enter in, but they can't. And so there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping and gnashing of teeth, then, is not really an image of physical pain. It's not somebody being treated with the virtual equivalent of a blowtorch. What it's about is the belief that they wanted to enter, would enter, get to the place, don't enter, and there is a sense of such inward grief, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's, it's the, I thought I was going to get in. But they don't, they're shut out from the presence of the Lord. Weeping and gnashing of teeth are not, responses here seems to pain. They're responses to exclusion. It's emotional pain. It's pain associated with loss and grief, not excruciating pain. A couple of things end up with making four observations that as we kind of consider hell, number one, when Jesus talks about hell, he confronts Jews with hell, not Gentiles. And as we'll say next week as well, that doesn't mean that Jews are bad. They are his firstborn. They're his representatives. They are the ones to and through whom God re introduces himself to the world. And that privilege is attended by great responsibility. And my sense is, and again, you don't need to, eh, my, here's my sense. I'll just tell you what I think. I think the Jews have been, are, they've ex they were exposed with a harsher discipline in order that they might be equipped to be those who have and in the future will transmit God's word to the world. Uh, God has always wanted to include Gentiles. This is not something that's a, 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 a mid-course correction. It, but it was always his purpose to reveal himself to the world, to and through the children of Abraham. And I'm going to suggest that part of Jewish equipping to be jars of clay, suffering servants, meant that they would be handed over to death so that life might be extended to non-Jews. And as part of that, they received very tough teaching. Uh, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus then comes to die and his emissaries, Jewish Christians in the first century, many of whom were exposed to very difficult lives. They were banished from Israel, scattered into the Roman Empire, where they left behind both neighborhood and livelihood. And because they went to the Roman Empire with the gospel, guess what? We have the opportunity 2,000 years later.
to benefit from the good news transmitted to us by jars of clay that were mistreated so that we could learn about the new covenant. Jesus confronts Jews with hell, not Gentiles. And again, it's not because they're bad. It's because they had a very difficult mission that we benefit from. Secondly, um, hell depicts eternal annihilation, not, e- not e- eternal torment. Again, you might disagree with me, and that's okay. You know, I'll say some things. You might say, Mike, I think you've got it wrong here. What I will say is this. Um, you can believe in eternal annihilation, and it doesn't mean that you're not biblical. I will not accept that designation that Mike, you're not being biblical. I will not accept that. Again, be, we can disagree. And again, I don't, I'm not being angry at you. There's, there's a sense that if you don't believe in a literal physical punishment, you're not a Bible-believing Christian. That is not the case. I won't accept that. Will he be, yes, you understand. You can be biblical and believe this. Again, you might not, and I'm not pushing you on that. But I'm telling you, you can believe it and be biblical. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think evidences emotional pain, not physical pain. I think that's the image, biblically. Again, there's certain room for disagreement. But consider what belief in hell means. You know the stanza, Amazing Grace? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining is the sun, with no less days to sing God's praise than when we're first begun. I don't, I thought of some words to point, to paint a different picture that I call into question. When we've been there 10,000 years, crying out in pain, this ghastly, inconceivable thought, no fewer years remain. No. Final question. Would God keep people alive together? Would God keep people alive to torment them eternally? Just for the purpose of retribution? Keep somebody alive eternally just for the purpose of retribution? Decade after decade into eternity? No. Let me pray for us. Father, we find ourselves when you are our mind stretched to think of how you could do that, how you could expose somebody to eternal torment millennia after millennia, never ending. It doesn't seem, it doesn't fit. Um, there are reasons that it exists, uh, but I'm thankful for Jesus and communicating what you're like. Um, 
Would you continue to clarify to us your purposes and your promises? As we think about you and most people who will attend church believe in a literal physical hell, place of torment rather than annihilation. Um, I'm not sure what to say about that, but in terms of us, would you help us to see what you would have us to see, believe what you would have us to believe? In Jesus' name. Amen.